Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. I really appreciate you guys coming along. The show has been growing, and it's really all thanks to you. Please keep spreading the word, uh, and make sure that you are rating, subscribing, and sharing. Share it through email, share it through word of mouth, share it through your Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, TikTok, whatever message you can get this message out there. Make sure that we are growing and our voices are being heard. Thank you so much in anticipation of your love and of your support. Remember, you can support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. Go over to Patreon, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and you can uh, help support the podcast through those means as well. Uh, It does cost me a little bit. Once again, I have to uh, pay a a fee to put these uh, episodes up, uh, buying new equipment, reading people's books, articles and things like that so anything that you can do to give me some support i would really really appreciate we have a great episode for you today today we have mr greg evans uh he is a uh, a great man who's on a journey to help uh, young uh kids of minority young kids of color to feel good about themselves to develop self-worth and self-respect and so therefore uh that is why i reached out to him and I'm going to read to you a little bit about Mr. Greg's bio. As you can tell from the title of this podcast, we're going to talk about the rites of passage and the importance of rites of passage. So here is a little bit about Mr. Greg Evans. He's the Associate Vice President for Equity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer at Lane Community College in Eugene, Oregon. His career as an educator includes a 24-year career as a classroom educator, program coordinator, lecturer, workshop facilitator, and consultant. He is the founder and program director of the award-winning Rites of Passage Summer Ac- Academies, underrepresented and deserved student populations at Community Lane Community College. Evans holds a Bachelor of Science in Marketing from Dyke College in Cleveland, Ohio, and a Master's in College Student Services Administration from Oregon State University. Evans is the principal and CEO of the Evans Group Consultants. Evans is a past member of the Lane Community College Education Association. He's the past president of the Oregon-Washington State Conference of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, that's the NAACP, and past vice president of both the National and Western Regional Councils on Black American Affairs of the American Association of Community Colleges. So good man for us today is gonna talk about the necessity of rites of passages, something I think that we really need to have within uh, minority, particularly the black community, uh, in order to have our men achieve to something. When they're 12, 13, 14 years old, there is something that they should have to look forward to. And it's not just a high school diploma, which we throw a big party for them. I also believe that people ought to have some type of uh, of uh, a, a positive outlook that they're looking for. Uh, something that says, hey, you have arrived, you are a man, and here's how we accept you into the community, right? Uh, we, we're not hunting down lions or chasing down wolves anymore as rites of passage to show that you're a man, but it's got to be more than just a high school diploma. Uh, we've got to really have something, you know, and so he's going to talk a little bit about the importance of this, what he's trying to achieve, and everything like that. So I want you to listen, and if you don't have anything within your community, maybe you can start something. Look into it, strengthen it, donate to it, your time, your energy, your money. Maybe you can start something at your church or your community center that would help to give the young men in your city, in your town, something to look forward to 
uh, something that they can embrace and says, hey, listen, this is what makes you a man. It's not running out here seeing how many girls you can impregnate or how many girls you can bed or how many notches in your belt you can, you can get. But really what we need are men who understand the importance of, uh, of, of entering into society and having a positive outlook and positive contribution to that society. So without further ado, everyone, here is the interview with Mr. Greg Evans. Captain Hunter. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you, my friend? I'm good, sir, I'm good, I'm good. Well, you know, everything is flipped upside down with this corona thing, man, and you know, I, 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 I've been at the uh, community college for 25 years and uh, I've never seen anything like this. In addition to, to that, um, we're going to be losing money from the state. Uh, we already were in a budget crunch. So, you know, we're really hurting trying to close a $15 million gap out of an $80 million budget. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty draconian. I mean, we're, I was on a call this morning, a staff call this morning with the with my president and the other vice presidents, and we were just talking about the fact that uh, we're going to have to close programs and lay people off. We've already laid off 300 people, 300 classified staff, but it's going to get to to managers and um, uh, it's going to get to managers and faculty too. So uh, everybody's going to take a big hit. And I need, don't need to tell you that the economic fallout behind this is going to be extremely draconian. Now, do you think that, uh, I mean, how long do you think this is going to last? I mean, as far as uh, the layoffs and everything that you're talking about? Um, some of them are going to be permanent. Man. Other, other, other programs, we just can't, we won't be able to bring back unless we get uh, more enrollment with students. And see, Students are in a different position now than they were when the when last recession hit in 08 and 09. Um, you know, they've got other options, and a lot of people do not want to rack up that amount of debt and then come out of school and not have a, a decent job available in their field or even paying them enough money to service the debt, let alone survive. Wow. Wow, that's yeah, really, it's, that's it's really going, and, and I'll tell you this, this is going to hit black students really hard. Don't really we hard. always get hit hard? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It, but, you know, again, I mean, we, we're the ones who are lagging most behind in terms of, um, you know, uh, college achievement, uh, graduation rates. Uh, our high school rates are, are extremely bad. I don't know if you know this or not, but Oregon, uh, as of the last time that, that we did the count, has, um, you know, the lowest graduation rate in the country. We're even below Mississippi and Arkansas now. Are you serious? As far as you talk about African-American students or just... Our, well, stu our students in general, African-American students uh, are demonstrably worse. So I'll give you I'll give you a another statistic. So, seventy percent of uh, our students graduate from high school. That's overall. Then when you start disaggregating that data and breaking it down, 
you're looking at uh, about 54% of black students graduate. So what is causing this, man? What's, what's causing this? I mean, I, uh, to be below this, Mississippi and all that is crazy. I mean, uh, not to be insulting to Mississippians, but. Well, this investment from the education system, one, by the state, uh, two, uh, people out here don't like to pay taxes. So we don't have, we don't have a, a sales tax. The sales tax has been defeated nine times. So all we've got is property tax and income tax to support um, everything in the state. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, we have the problems we do. But we're not alone on that. There are, there are at least 38 other states in this country that are virtually broke and, 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 can't, and can't support their school system, their mental health systems. Um, you know, it can't, you can't pave the roads. It, it's, yeah, yeah, this is all by design, Captain. And I'll tell, you, I'll, I'll tell you this. The design is, is for the federal government to push all of their responsibility for um, infrastructure and everything else back onto the states. And the states, because the states can't uh, hold that up, eventually what you're going to see is a state like Louisiana that will totally divest um, from public schools altogether. So part of it is to kill the public school system, turn them into charter schools. And you know what that means for black and brown kids. If you don't have the resources to, you know, pay teachers, provide supplies, uh, you know, internet connections and infrastructure, um, it, it's, it's not gonna work. The, the achievement gap and, and the, the income disparities are going to get wider and deeper than I, I think that anybody's ever seen since, since before the, the, you know, the last depression. Wow, that's really some you bad know, news there. We're getting richer all the time. Right. We're getting poorer. And the middle class is disappearing. Right, right, right. Wow, that's really depressing. I did not know that. I did not know that Oregon did not have a sales tax or income tax. You said income tax. The sales tax. Sales. No, they're not. They're not sales tax. Wow, I did not know. That. I really we, we've know only that. got we've only got two legs to the stool. The third leg is missing. Right. Yeah, nobody wants to pay taxes, man. No, nobody does. I, I I definitely understand it, but I mean, but if people are seeing that they're Educational system. Well, let me ask you this: Are are people seeing it? I mean, obviously the the middle to upper middle class and even the rich are they seeing that this is a problem where uh, they cannot fund school not schools can't pave roads? Do they see that as a problem, or is it such a such a gap that their their roads are being paved, or, or and they obviously they can send their kids to charter and, and or private schools, so so they probably don't care at all, right? Well, here's the deal. Um, you know, uh, if if public schools start to fail, um, you know that's that's bad news for about you know ninety five percent of the country. Um, the other five percent are going to be taken care of because they'll be able to put their children, and they still do, into private schools and education and pay for it. Um, Betsy DeVos, the uh, Secretary of Education, who's you know. Uh, I don't get me started on her. 
Right. But <laughs> the Trump proposal, the Trump proposal is just to take that tax money and be able to apply it to private education. So the the grand design on this, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination. I look at the data. The data is if you can't graduate from high school, you're not eligible for college, or you go into college and you 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 punch out after a year or two and you're staddled with all that debt, the idea is that you will never get out of debt. And you will ne- and you will never come up to the level that you know wealthy white folks are and they will keep control of you know, most of the apparatuses that that have money or wealth or anything else in this country, you know, they 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 want you to be poor and they want to break these unions. Yeah, listen, I can't say I disagree with you. I mean, I've heard and read that so many different times that it's about union busting. It's about keeping people in the constant perpetual state of owing someone else. Uh, never getting out of that out of that box, so I, I can't. It's the new it. slavery, man. Yeah, debt yeah. is slavery. Debt was always slavery in England. If you couldn't pay your bills, they just sent you to prison. And you know what? You you know what's happening now is the rapid growth of our prison industrial system, and we have more people in prison. See, this is why I I I developed I created and developed the rights of passage program twenty five years ago. Because even then, you know, and we had a much smaller population of African-American students and students of color in general at that point, those dynamics have changed. And so now we've got more students of color, more biracial students, uh, Latino students, Asian students, um, Native Americans, and uh, their path to higher education is being truncated. by this the the disinvestment in education to begin with i mean our governor declared it a state of emergency and then went out and got you know uh, developed a a tax that was going to go on to only those people that you know um were earning a million dollars or more in the state and that raised two billion dollars for our k-12 system well Right now, that $2 billion is going to get sucked up in this coronavirus thing. You know, we, we, we'll be back to square one again, guarantee you. Right, right, right. And unless you, unless you have, and here's another critical point, unless we have men, and I'm talking about black men, involved in the day-to-day um, discourse of developing and enhancing family life um, is not going to work. So I'll give you another statistic. In 1970, 75% of all Black households were headed by a man and a woman who were married to each other. You You flip that to 2010, it's the exact opposite. 75% of black households are headed by women with no man in sight. I don't know if you watch HBO or not, but there's a, there's this whole thing on the Atlanta child murders because nobody believes that Wayne Williams did that. He couldn't have done it. 
um, and it's being dredged up again. And I noticed something when I was watching the third episode last night, um, and they were interviewing uh, the parents of the of the boys that were murdered. Do you know there was not one father in that whole lineup of the 30 plus kids that were murdered? It was all the mothers. You know, I heard that that there were that the fathers, uh, someone else had brought had brought that up that there was that the whoever it was targeted boys who did not have uh, they they put a strong stable household. That's how they kind of worded it. Right. I did, I did hear that before. Yeah, yeah, I did hear that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, our uh, again another reason why we 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 developed uh, rites of passage because there were virtually no, no male role models for these kids, boys or girls. Mm. If, you, if you're a boy, you know, you, you, you model what you see, you do what you see in front of you. And the same thing for girls. If the girls see a man who is not working, who's on drugs, who's a philanderer, all of that kind of thing, they're going to, they're going to think that that's what they can expect in their men. They're, their choice of men when they get older, right, right, and they won't, and they won't have a, they won't have a positive standard for that to, for people to be looking at that. So, it, it's, it's scary and it's, it's tough, and, um, you know, we, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly critical of um, not only other black leadership in this country but of the role models that, you know, we're putting in front of people in, in terms of television and Hollywood. Right. I completely understand what you're saying. I, um, I, I was having a, uh, you, you know, my daughter's growing up and, uh, you know, I got her little cell phone. Now she's 22 right now. And uh, she's about 15 or 16 or so. And I hear her talking to some boy in the phone on her cell phone. So I'm kind of listening to the conversation. And man, the things that she was saying to this kid, I felt bad for the boy. I mean, she was being very harsh and very critical and just, and, and my point is, is that obviously, I, you know, I grew up, well, it's not obvious, but I grew up, <laughs> I, I made sure that uh, I was there and present in my daughter's life. And I could tell that she was going to be okay by the conversation that she had with this boy because he wasn't falling for any game. She wasn't going for any nonsense. You know, she put him in his place. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, okay, I got nothing to worry about, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. She was a little pit bull in talking to him, so I definitely see uh, uh, the difference. And we, we, my daughter and I have actually talked about this. The the, the difference in uh, in in um, the people, the girls that she grew up with who did not have a father, and she sees and realizes uh, the strength that she has uh, in the fortitude that she has. Uh, and everything like that. So, so there really is something special uh, about fathers and and the need for them to be present in people's lives and and and, and men and, and and boys and girls' lives. It really is yeah. important. It really is important. Yeah, because because you're the example of the kind of man that eventually she wants to marry. Right. Right. You know? and, right. and 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 she won't she won't take anything less than that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I definitely see that. Definitely see that. I, my, my, my youngest child is, is, is soon to be 15 years old and she's a, she's a good girl, but she, 
she's open to con you know have conversations with me about anything including you know relationships sex whatever the case may be and you know i basically tell her you know you don't want anybody who really doesn't have their stuff together right you know? right you really don't and it's it's funny to talk as you go by <laughs> right right and it's funny to to when I have conversations with other people, you know, people my age, my friends, and I would have the same conversation that you had, you know, when your daughter is 15 uh, now and when my daughter was 14, 15, 13, 14, 15, 16, even till today, she'll tell me things. And sometimes I'm like, listen, you got to stop telling me this. Uh, you're, you're 22. OK, I don't need to know all this. But it, but she's number one. She's, I feel good that she's open. And number two is is I think that it's important. And she, her friends were always critical about you know why would you tell your dad that? Why would you why would you have the conversation? Even my friends would be like, you know, how could you have this conversation with your daughter? And my philosophy was, is that if I'm not going to have these conversations, she's going to have them with someone else, and someone's going to give her either bad information or misinformation. I'd rather hear her hear the truth for me about, about life, whether it's drugs, about how to go to a bar and not get a roofie stick in, stuck in your, in your, in your drink. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I feel it's important to tell her all this kind of stuff. So therefore she won't do those things and, and fall for the prey of what we're talking about. The, uh, the, these, these knuckleheads uh, that are out there because people are, are out there and they will try, they will try. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So I, I really thank you for coming on the podcast, man. Uh, we, we already kind of started off here with a bang here. So if you would just introduce yourself uh, to the audience here and, um, and we'll, we'll go from there. Well, uh, Captain, my name is Greg Evans. Um, I'm 59 years old. Uh, my my uh, profession is education. Uh, currently, I'm the Associate Vice President for Equity and Inclusion and Lane Community College in Eugene, Oregon. Um, in addition to that, I'm also a Eugene City Councilor. So I've been on the City Council since 2013. Originally, I was appointed to fill out an unexpired term of a, a counselor who moved on to be a county commissioner. And uh, since then, I have won three straight elections and um, I'm looking to probably serve one more term, um, and, and that will come up in 2022. I'm also the founder of the uh, African-American Rites of Passage program at Lane Community College. It's a program, an enrichment program for uh, African-American students, both in the middle schools and the high schools. Uh, we also develop companion programs for Native American students, Latino, Latina students, and Pan-Asian American students. So we have a suite of four programs that are directed at the uh, cultural and, and emotional and psychological and educational development um, of, these, uh, of, of these communities and trying to help those students not only be aware of what their community has contributed to this country and the richness of that, but also um, we, we, we want them to be proud of themselves, to not listen to people tell them that they are worthless. Um, I want them to be strong in who they are and what they're doing and where they're going. 
And um, we've been fairly successful with that over the last 25 years. So that's that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay, very good, very good. And so thank you so much for that. Uh, you really uh, kind of answered a few questions for me. As to, and one of the questions was why uh, did you want to start this particular program? And I appreciate that because I think that it's, I appreciate your answer because I think that it's very important that uh, students have pride in themselves um, and, and grow up to be young men and women who have pride in themselves and not look down upon themselves. Um, and, and so contrast what you're doing in comparison to uh, the traditional education that I assume that, that they're getting, you know, I got here in Connecticut, you know, that essentially our history started when we got off the boat. Uh, talk about why it's important that they get some sense of history, some sense of uh, self-esteem. Well, one thing is, is that our history, as you uh, alluded to, did not start when people, you know, uh, got off the boat in Plymouth Rock or in, in Virginia, uh, Jamestown, and those kinds of things. Um, our history goes way back into millennia. Um, we have been, you know, uh, organized civilizations for many, many years before Europe was even an organized civilization. So, be, uh, you know, a lot of that history is out there. It's well-developed, uh, particularly with West Africa, East Africa, and also Southern Africa. So some of the things that we have been told uh, in terms of history only really begin is when the white man showed up. Um, and that's, uh, that's not true. That's basically not true. And, um, you know, slavery is another big issue. There's, there's slavery all over the planet, whether it was in Asian communities, European communities, African communities, but in Africa and Asia, slavery was different. Usually slaves came about as the result of losing war. And because they were prisoners of war, um, they became part of those communities. And eventually a lot of those folks were to be moved in status out of a prisoner of war, out of a slave status to being part of those communities. So yeah, we have our kings, we have our queens, um, we have our warriors, and we also have our education, ed educators and educational institutions. So if you look at, at, at you know, some of the West African institutions, particularly those in Mali, um, they had universities, um, they had uh, school structures. Um, they were taught, you know, how to live and, and, and to be educated and to be productive and to have a really grounded sense of what the world was like um, from those perspectives. And those were healthy relationships. Um, Western style of European slavery, um, you know, basically destroyed that. And we have what we have now in the West, in the Western Hemisphere, not just in North America, but also in Central America and South America, where we have been classified as secondary citizens, less than. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, not viewed to be 
uh, human or equal to that of a European. Right, right, right. So the rites of passage, and I, I was kind of Googling this, thinking about show ideas and uh, came across you, your, your website and came across uh, your organization and you know, community college there. And, you know, growing up here in Connecticut, um, there was no uh, institution that was doing those types of things, certainly none that I was aware of. And I was a member of the local church. I was a member of, a, a, I went to the boys club. I went to, um, uh, during the summertime, I would go to the YMCA summer camp. And, but no one was ever doing any type of rites of passage. And of course, we all know one of the most famous uh, systems of rites of passage is, is by Jewish uh, persons, you know, the bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. And so I, I really kind of thought about this. And, uh, you know, the, the rise of African-American uh, rites of passage is growing. Um, and so l let's talk a little bit about that, uh, the need for it. We, we talked about it a, a little bit, but let's kind of delve into it a little bit more as in there's no or, or, or dearth of solid, strong black men who are encouraging, uplifting, guiding uh, the young black men and women. Can you elaborate about that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, originally I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm from the Midwest. And when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, my godfather was Carl Stokes, who was the first uh, black mayor of a major American city back in 1967. And I realized years later after I moved out to Oregon that, that back in third grade in Cleveland, we had black teachers who gave us a solid grounding in black history, um, black literature, uh, talked about the importance of being a productive member of the community. And over the years, when they introduced crack and cocaine and, and, and reintroduced heroin into our communities in the early 80s and going on through the 90s, uh, that was by design so that we would not have the interest in knowing who we are and knowing what our people are truly about. And so I looked at that when I was, I, I came out to Oregon in, in 1985 and by, I had a few jobs in between. And by the time I came to Lane Community College as a faculty member, one of the things that I realized in our community was that we did not have programs or structures to build good self-esteem and self-images self with our young people. So that was the impetus to creating Rites of Passage. So myself, um, Marcus Woods, who was a former um, uh, U of O Oregon Duck football player, um, and uh, a guy by the name of Bill Young, who's African-American from Philadelphia, and uh, was a, as a lawyer and was a judge here in, in Oregon. Uh, we sat down at, at Bill Young's table one day and we came up with Rites of Passage. And Rites of Passage didn't come out of the thin air. Um, I looked at my experiences in, in, in Upward Bound. I had also did research. There was another um, program that was um, developed at George Mason University 
uh, called the Challenge Attempt. And it was a six week long program. It was a residential program, but it was an immersion in African-American culture. And so what I did was I sat down and looked at both of those programs and tried to design a program that would also be compatible with a community college and uh, the commuter style of education that the community college provided for local folks. And so that's how we began with the design and developing the curriculum. And the curriculum, you know, is inclusive of African-American history, African-American literature, um, and also um, life skills and, and self-esteem. And so those are the core pieces of it. And then we have other um, workshops and things that are integrated into that. But we wanted to be able to give these young people a way to connect with their own heritage and their own culture and to be um, proud of who they are. Uh, as you can imagine, on the West Coast, we have a lot of mixed race families and children from, you know, um, you know, parents who one parent is white, one parent is black, one parent's Latino, another parent is black. But, you know, as we all know, by kinky hair and, you know, to, to a lesser degree by skin color, um, these children are identified as being African-American and they are treated as such. So when you go into the major, the, the overall public school system, they may have a unit on Langston Hughes or Toni Morrison, but that's about it. And they don't talk about the scientists. They don't talk about the business people. They don't talk about the African-Americans who achieved in every corner of this nation. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to, to, to expose these students to, the, to that history, expose these students to the literature, and then give, give them a way to live their lives and manage their lives so that they could be successful after, after high school. Absolutely. Now, what were the core principles again? You said there were four of them? Um, we, were, we were looking at, yeah, there, there, there were four things that we, we developed in terms of the curriculum. And that was African-American history, African-American literature and music. So music is, in, is encompassed in that. Uh, we did life skills training uh, with those students. And then we would have uh, a series of workshops in which the students were engaged with and um, connected with African-American professionals locally and statewide. So there was lectures that there are lectures that are given every every year periodic actually uh, once a week for four weeks. Now this occurs in the uh, middle school, high school, or is it a classroom type of thing, after school program, or we we it's, it's crafted in an academic framework. So what we had to do was bring students together, you know, because we we don't have a a, a, a majority of students of color at any one school in this community, was to bring them together in the summer. Usually it's in July. Um, and we would, we would, you know, put the program together, recruit the students, bring them on campus, 
help them understand uh, a college experience from the standpoint of a community college student. So we give them bus passes and, uh, and food and other amenities. So they, are, they have transportation, they have food, um, and they have the support of my team. What are the demographics of the Northwest? I mean, you're in Eugene, Oregon. I mean, I was up in Seattle last summer. What, what are the demographics up there as far as, you know, uh, African-Americans and mixed kids and all that? Well, if you, if you know it. Yeah. Or Oregon is, in Oregon is 2%. Oh, wow. Out of 4, out of four million people, 90% of uh, African-Americans live in Portland, mostly Northeast, and some have migrated to Southeast as a result of gentrification. So, you know, if you go to Portland, North, North, Northeast Portland used to be a very tight African-American community. And now because, um, you know, white yuppies want to have close-in access to downtown to be able to ride their their bikes across the Burnside Bridge to go to work and have a latte, um, they went in and they um, basically dismantled the African-American community, sucked up the property for uh, very cheap. So somebody would have have sold their house for like $50,000, $60,000 up there to somebody, to some white couple who comes in and invest in it, and they basically turn it into a house that's worth three quarters of a million dollars. And that's what you have in Northeast Portland now, all around MLK Boulevard. And so outside of Portland, is a, the, the, the population is even thinner. So basically the rest of the 10, 10% of African Americans is spread throughout the Willamette Valley and some and some folks that live in central and eastern Oregon. And what are the racial relations like up there? I mean, I know gentrification can be problematic, but uh, the north people always talk about the south, but the but the northwest was pretty bad, from what I understand. It was pretty bad. Um, well, first. yeah, it, and and you know what, it, uh, you know, Captain Hunter, it starts out with the history of of Oregon, so. When Oregon became a state, in order to avoid the question, and that was in the 1850s, in order to avoid the question of whether it's going to be slave or free, um, basically uh, the, the, the leaders at that time decided, well, we're just going to make it illegal to have black people here, period. So um, you can't bring your slaves in, but free blacks can't live here either. And so that was the basis for, for the relationship between African-Americans and white Oregonians from the very beginning. And at, at that exclusivity, um, you know, has extended throughout um, the years. And so uh, back in 1914, the first uh, black NAACP west of the Mississippi was founded in Portland. Uh, and, and you went on from there. And then as you had more African-Americans come to the state vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, World War II and working in 
the industri industries that supported the war, shipping, um, uh, air, you know, airplane construction, all of that, there was a need for people in bodies. And a lot of folks were recruited out of the South and they came to Oregon to go to work and uh, most of them stayed. And so over the years, you know, it has been, you know, a, a tough going because we have a, we have our share of racist folks and, um, you know, the, you know, the white supremacists have, have designated Oregon, Washington, Northern California, Idaho, and um, Wyoming as, as the states where uh, white supremacy would predominate. And uh, eventually they were going to get rid of all the Native Americans, African Americans, and Latinos. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. We've resisted. That's a short. That's a short history of it. But we've had elected officials. We've had you know different other things. So it's 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 really kind of a a weird uh, mix. Uh, we have we have a heavy dose of racism here, but at the same time, there's not the same kind of oppressive racism that you would have experienced in the South. So I know people who um, years ago left places like Texas and Louisiana to come to the Northwest and, were, and, and decided they were never going to go back again because at least they were treated in a way that was not as draconian as they were treated in the South. And, you know, that's not saying much but it is, it pretty much is that way. Um, but yeah, we, we, we have our own set of racial problems, uh, jobs, uh, education, uh, housing, uh, all that it, it, it negatively affects us. You know, there's a reason why Northeast Portland, Portland developed as a black community because African-Americans were pushed there at the time because that those properties were deemed not desirable to live in by whites. Mm. Mm. And so, yeah, so you're on your third term. So you obviously uh, have been voted in as, as a city council, you said, right? Third term in the city council. Yeah, third term. Uh, I represent 22,000 people. And of the 22,000 folks that I represent, uh, I would say that uh, about 10% of those are um, uh, Latinos. And as far as African-Americans are concerned, um, there's only about a handful of us in this ward. Okay. Now, we, we, don't, we don't even register on the scale. Okay. Wow. So that, I mean, that would mean that you're being voted in by, by white folks and or the Latino population, essentially. Yeah. yeah essentially, that, that, is, that is it. Um, but, you know, before I became a, a, a city counselor, I, you know, I had, I had developed um, a, a resume that was uh, pretty strong. So I had served as the state president of the NAACP in the late 80s and early 90s. I was um, uh, on the planning commission. Uh, I was on a number of different commissions and committees. Uh, throughout the 1990s and the early 2000s. 
I was on the transit board uh, for seven years. I chaired that board. I was on the fair board for six years. I chaired that board. And then when the opportunity came about for me to um, uh, assume the city council seat, I took the appointment. Very nice. That is an impressive resume. So I imagine that you're well, well trusted. So you look around, you, you've got all this uh, uh, life experience growing up in Cleveland, seeing the positive role models that you had. Uh, you grow up, uh, become a member of the NAACP, and go on to do a number of other things. And so you see a need. And so let, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, something we talked about before as far as the, the, the dearth of black male fathers, positive male role models in the homes. We talked about what was going on up until the 1960s, 70s. Now the situation is flipped. In your estimation, what has caused this flip, this flip, and what can we do to flip it back? Uh, I think there's a number of factors, but two major factors, particularly in urban areas, that contributed to this. One was the fact that um, back when I was growing up and when you were growing up, uh, black men had jobs. They worked at Ford, in Cleveland, they worked at Ford Motor. Re, uh, Republic Steel, um, Jones and Laughlin Steel, uh, Alco Aluminum, all of those major manufacturing concerns. And as you moved in later in the 70s and moved into the 80s, a lot of those factories um, and operations moved outside of, of the United States of America. And uh, they got cheaper labor overseas and in Mexico. And so those jobs started to dry up and go away. Uh, I can tell you, my, my cousin graduated high school the year before me in 1977. And we used to have a joke, you know, you would graduate from high school and then you would go to Ford U, you know, <laughs> Ford Motor. Right. You right, know, right. and we went into Ford Motor. And, you know, before the end of, uh, of the, the following year, the next, before, you know, the next June, uh, my cousin owned uh, two trucks, a car, and had an apartment, and four girlfriends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, all of that went away. So you did not need to go to college. You didn't need to get a degree. You just needed to get into Ford or you needed to get into Republic Steel or you needed to go to Pontiac and you got a job and went to work on the line. Um, those jobs dried up and disappeared. Um, and then the other piece is the drug piece. So, you know, for years and years and years, the only people who used heroin were... Uh, people who were in the music business or, you know, just don't, straight out junkies, that kind of thing. Uh, nobody even heard about cocaine when I was coming up. That was some kind of exotic drug that only rich white people could get, get their hands on. Mostly it was, it was weed and beer and wine, um, you know, uh, which is bad enough, but uh, doesn't elicit the kind of damage these other drugs do. So um, moving into the 80s, you started to see um, uh, crack cocaine being introduced into community, 
you also saw black tar heroin introduced in the community. And those, those things were done by design. And then you didn't have jobs for these folks to go to. And eventually um, it caused the, the disruption and to a large degree, the destruction of the black nuclear family. Like I said before, in 1970, 75% of all black households had a mother and a father who were married to each other in it. And then, you know, you point to 2010 and that, that statistic totally flipped. So 75% of households in 2010, black households, were headed by a woman. And only 25% were headed by a man. So, you know, black men essentially became irrelevant. And I've heard this, many black women have told me this over here. I don't need a man to raise my children. And they got that in their head. Um, and I had, I had a talk one time at an NAACP dinner and I said, we need men because men are important to any culture and civilization. If you do not have healthy, strong male role models, your children will go astray. Now, I grew up with a single parent. My father died when I was four years old. I had a gangster for a mother. She was ruthless. And her, and her goal for me was that I was going to go to college and I was going to graduate. Um, my mother was a teacher. My father worked at the post office before he died. Um, and, you know, we had a home and it was a solid base, but, you know, nothing ostentatious. I grew up in a 700 square foot house. If you know, square feet, that's pretty small. Right. So, you know, I, what has happened is, you know, the lack of jobs, the lack of education opportunities, the, um, introduction of, um, you know, high-powered uh, street drugs in the community and the following violence that goes along with that. Um, you know, we, we had gangs when I was a kid, but, you know, they were basically fist fights and fights with, you know, you know, baseball bats. You know, nobody, you know, you didn't see, you didn't see or hear about you know, 14-year-old kids carrying around, you know, guns. There was some of that going on, but not to the level that it is today. And so, you know, because you don't have those role models and because the, um, the African-American communities around the country have almost literally been decimated uh, by racism, and by a plan, I, I would say a plan, to curb our ability to participate wholly and fully in this society, um, we, are, we, are, we are experiencing a re-enslavement of African Americans that a lot of people don't want to put that label to, but that's exactly what it is. If they can control your money, if they can control your body, and they control your mind, you're a slave. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, 
especially the the money aspect of it, whether we're in debt to uh, these colleges or to the U.S. government through student loans, uh, if we can't control the economic resources of our own communities, then I certainly agree that we are definitely in some type of uh, enslaved condition. Absolutely. We're, we're, also, Absolutely. we're also enslaved to these banks because, you know, all of us have credit cards and all the rest of that. And a lot of people weren't taught how to handle credit. But once you get into, into debt with these folks, they don't want to let you go. So what they do is they raise your credit limit, they do this, they do that, other offers. And before you know it, you're five, ten, fifteen, twenty-five thousand dollars in debt. Uh, they changed the formula for uh, supporting an education. When I came along, it was mostly grants and very few loans. They basically have gotten rid of most of the grants to go to college and have instituted the loan system. And so not only African-Americans are being enslaved to credit but and debt, uh, but white folks are too. And so you got to look at these banks and financial institutions who are doing that. I mean, when, when my parents came along, a bank would not give you a loan to buy a house. My parents had my parents and their friends had to get loans from the savings and loan folks who would, who would finance you. Um, fast forward today, there's still redlining going on. Um, we still have, you know, housing that is underdeveloped and, and broken. Uh, and you, you, you add up all of these, the, these things. And again, I'll, I'll repeat your, 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 you're re-enslaved again because you know you have to pay your debts and if you don't pay your debts they cut your they cut your credit off so you can't buy anything you can't buy a house you can't buy a car you can't you know take a vacation um you know this is these these this is strategic very strategic and the quality of our school systems has gone down dramatically so whites are able to buy their way out of public education. African-Americans and Latinos can't. So we're trapped where we are. Right, right. Let's get back to the rights of passage for, for, for a minute here. Do you receive any pushback from, uh, from any white parents, white organizations out there? Oh, why are you doing this for black kids? And now you've expanded to Latino, Asian, and uh, uh, native kids, do you get any pushback from any other organizations or murmurs from the community? Not much. Um, you know, uh, we represent, you know, such a small part of the population that uh, we kind of fly under the radar with regard to that. But, you know, I have had some pushback from mostly um, white parents who have adopted black kids. And, you know, for us to start to teach them about their background and history is frightening for them. Really? And what I've told those, yeah, and what I've told those parents is that if we don't teach them how to live as black men and black women, you know, they're going to run up on stuff in which they're not going to be able to survive. You know, you're, you're raising these children in a bubble, in a white bubble. And you don't know what the experiences are 
of African Americans in this country and what your children are facing. Because one of the reasons why they bring them to rites of passage in the first place is because when they get to be teenagers, lines are drawn. So I'll give you an example. When my, you know, when my kids were in elementary school, they had a set of friends. Uh, they go over to their houses, they go to birthday parties, that kind of thing. But by the time my boys got into sixth and seventh grade, those friends had disappeared. And you know what they tell them? They tell them, don't pollute the tree. Don't pollute the family tree. You need to get with your own kind of people. They don't want their daughters dating African-Americans or Latinos. They don't want your, you know, to have that whole mixture into, into their family. So, you know, there becomes a, a, a separation between those kids, those African-American kids, and, you know, the white kids that are in school. And, you know, ra the racism goes up several notches from there. So we're, you know, you're part of the community, but you're really not part of the community. And they let you know that. And that is one of the main reasons why we started Rights of Passage, because these students, these kids did not know who they were and what their role was in society. And it's incumbent upon us who are older, who are professionals, to provide that kind of education and guidance. Yeah, that's some, some really powerful stuff. Have you ever told any of those parents who have adopted black kids those types of stories, and if you did, what was their response to, to that? I mean, are they just incredulous to that thinking? Well, when their kids are young, yeah, they're incredulous. They, they don't believe that's gonna happen. It, you know, that, you know that, that Eugene, Oregon is, is, you know, we don't have racism here, right? <laughs> well, when they find out how their children are treated, when they're, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're told that, you know, uh, that they're the color of poop, um, that, you know, uh, black people have never done anything, you know, uh, positive in society, but dribble a basketball and carry a football, um, you know, and other things that are, you know, far more racist than that, then they get freaked out because this is my child. I love my child. I adopted this child. And now this child is 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 not only afraid of the people at school and the teachers and the students, but they're looking at me sideways. <laughs> so I've had more of them come to me and say, Greg, help my child. Right, 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 right. Help my child. Because right. I don't understand this. I had, I had one woman who flatly refused to take, take her, her daughter to a black church and I, in, in town. I said, you know, that would, you know, you're a Christian, all of that kind of thing. I said, that would help. It would help. Um, and she flat refused to do it. And, you know, that child has never recovered from her adolescent experiences. You know, um, she ended up swinging on a pole. I mean, commit suicide? No. No, I mean. Oh, 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 oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. It was an exotic dancer, you know. 
And yeah. the girl was extremely smart and brilliant, but you know, that was the only path that she know, knew to go. And she got mixed up with the wrong man. And you know, that's what happened. Yeah. That kind of stuff is really, really heartbreaking. And I, yeah. And, and I think, I think that a lot of people really think that I think that racism in, in my talking with people, and I'm not, you know, some expert, but in my talking with people, especially from people from all white communities, they really don't think that there's racism. And so they must go to parties, they must go to stores, and they must never talk about this. It's until uh, one or two or three black families move in, start going to the school, uh, and that's when they start seeing things that they've never seen before and hearing things they've never heard before. So I, don't, I, I guess it's my assumption that many of this stuff isn't talked about. And maybe these parents that you're talking about uh, never, uh, uh, you know, talked about as growing up, it wasn't a big deal, right? But then these families move in. Now, as you mentioned, you know, the 60s and 70s, people start migrating because of jobs. And, and, and now these families are here. And now they're exposed to this whole new line of thinking and they're not prepared for it. And it's really, really sad, really sad. No, and then you, you want to have a family. You want to raise your children um, the right way. Um, you know, and you have black and biracial children that just do not fit in the framework of public education. Uh, they don't. Because there's, for a long time, there was absolutely nothing for them to reach to or cling to. If you don't have an African-American teacher in your life, I've known a lot of, stu lot of kids in this community that had never seen an African-American in any leadership role, um, you know, in their school experience. So no black teachers, no black principals. That's changed to some degree in the last few years. Uh, we had a black superintendent a few years ago and then we also had a, a Latino superintendent who just recently took a job in Washington. Um, but, you know, the lack of seeing those role models and having contact with them and, you know, understanding that there's more to life um, than a poverty mentality, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly important, you know. White kids take all of that stuff for granted. They right. see their parents doing doing well. They see, you know, the leadership in the schools because, you know, all the teachers look like them or most of them look like them. Um, but, you know, again, you know, this, these, are, these are difficult conversations to have and, and uh, difficult things that we, we need to address. So, um, you know, over the years, I've kind of, you know, lost a little bit of my energy because this battle is tough and it's tough to fight and it wears on you. It really wears on you. Do you do anything? You don't have a whole lot of allies. Oh, I can imagine. Do you do anything for um, uh, the white kids, right? Because I, I, I'm for, I firmly believe that many of these African-American programs that, are, that you're doing and that I've talked to a number of other uh, persons, uh, white kids need to be in on this as well. When, they, when they're telling us, when they're telling African-Americans that you've never done anything in history, th they need to be educated as well. So do you do anything for the poor white kids in your community and or to educate white kids concerning black history and all that as well? 
I had a proposal 20 years ago to create a parallel program for white students that was designed around anti-racism and I could never get it funded. Never get it funded. Yeah. I could get I could get money out of corporations and you know uh, donations from you know some really you know great people white people, black people, whatever the case may be, to support our four programs, four programs for students of color. But when I brought up, you know, and, and developed the program that was an anti-racism program, um, that would be parallel to what we were doing. And that means that we would have, you know, classes that would be integrated and be focused on, you know, telling these folks, you know, the truth about, you know, how things evolved in America and around the world, uh, I had no takers. Yeah, that's really horrible, but, but typical, typical. So um, if someone wanted to get in touch with you to set up a similar type of program, could you give us that, uh, you, you know, your contact information or website? How, how do people, and your, your program serves as a model as well to other programs. Can you elaborate about that a little bit? Yeah, um, if you want to get in touch with me, um, and see, I'm not administering the program now. I've got a new guy that has taken my place on, on the faculty side, Dr. Lawrence Rashid from California, who's the day-to-day -day person in this. But I still have my fingers in it. Um, just, just contact me um, at uh, Evans E V all lowercase Evans E V A N S G is in Greg at Lane L A N E C C dot E D U. Um, phone number is five four one four six three five three zero seven. You can call me and leave me a message there. Or you can leave me a message on um, my home my home number, which is 541-556-7753. And I'll get back to you. I actually I have to tell you this it, it, story is inside. I've had people from all across the country who've called me about this program. And I've had a few folks that have sent their kids. So we we've had kids from New Orleans. Um, Chicago, um, Denver, uh, Phoenix, that have attended that we, you know, let you know, get into this experience. I once had a woman call me from Detroit that begged me to take her child, and I said, "Well, I would love to take him. However, um, you know, we don't have the resources to put him up at housing and feed him." Um, you're going to have to provide that. And she's like, I, I just don't have that kind of money, but I know he needs this. You know, yeah, I, yeah, and, I, and that was, that was a tough conversation. I can imagine. And that's why I want to do this. This, that's why I want to put this on blast. And obviously, and it's great that other people have heard about you, but I think that man, not only what you're doing in Eugene, but in Detroit, Chicago, New Haven, Connecticut, New Orleans. We need we need these types of mentorship programs uh, all over 
and more black men stepping up. And, and listen, we are. I mean, it, it, you know, I hate to, 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 have, to have the rhetoric that and it seems like we're saying black men aren't doing anything, but, but men such as yourself, and there's plenty of other men. I, when, I was, uh, I, when I was, my kids were growing up, I coached. Uh, so whatever we can do, whether it's coaching, uh, yeah. kids and numerous different sports and all that kind of stuff. So it's all important. And I, and I like the idea of, of some type of rites of passage, as in we have some type of point where you say, okay, this is what it takes for you to graduate. And once you have achieved this type of thing, right? The only type of graduation ceremony that, that many African-Americans had in, the, in my community was when we graduated from high school. And I, I never thought that that was enough. Even when I was in high school, it's like, you know, our churches need to be doing more. Our, our community centers, uh, YMCA, our boys clubs, and we need something that's, that's black oriented as what you're doing. And I don't mean to say that to be yeah. racist, but I'm saying that we need to know who we are and what we are, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, we don't have the tools to be, uh, quite frankly, a lot of parents don't have the tools or the time to sit down with their kids anymore to do that. You've got, you got mothers that are working two and three jobs. But I will point out there there are some other rites of passage programs out there in, around the country, uh, not necessarily the style that we do because ours is an academic base, but um, they're more culturally oriented programs that are coming out of churches and um, community centers. It's really tough to sustain these programs because as as funds get to be short, um, usually our programs the first ones that are targeted for extinction. So, um, you know, we've got to find a different way of being able to fund these programs for our community and don't have to necessarily rely on, you know, the benevolence of rich white people or white institutions like mine is. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with that 100%. I agree. We've got to be able to do this thing ourselves. We talked about that uh, economic enslavement before, and this is, that would just be another facet of that. We've got to learn to, be, to free ourselves from the benevolence of other people. We've got to learn to do that. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and like I said, I was just talking about the, the whole thing about debt and slavery and all of that kind of deal. Um, you look at it, uh, you know, black folks will go under far faster than white people will. Just look at our president. He's filed for bankruptcy four times and gotten away with it. <laughs> president, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> that was before he was president. Right, so right, right. We, right. Can't, we, 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 we may get one shot at filing bankruptcy. We're not going to get any more than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You're definitely right. Greg Evans, man, I really, really thank you for coming on the Captain Hunters podcast, man. It was a great conversation, man. I want to definitely have you back, man. There's a lot more for us to talk about, a lot more for us to dissect and get through, man. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Captain Hunter, and I'll look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. Take care of yourself.